So 1 Peter 1 and verse 13. Where we began last week, if you didn't hear it, you can check out the podcast. I won't repeat myself, but I do want to review because the church is the only place where review is really despised. Did you know that? If you preach the same message two weeks in a row, people would like, they'd hate you for it. We, we don't like review. Why? Because we've all been programmed to be entertained and we want something new. Give me a new message and a new revelation and a new way of thinking about God. And it's like maybe we need the old way of thinking about God and the Word of God. Maybe we need to wash and flush every thought we've ever had about God and His kingdom that we can't find Scripture for. This is Bible 101. This is Christianity 101. So 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13 says, Therefore gird your minds or prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. Does anybody remember the three forms of lust I gave? Sex, power, and money. Biblically, there's more to lust than sex. We just think it's just sex. But lust is actually the word for desire, and it's what you are longing for. You and I are not capable of turning off our longings. If you meet people who are dead and deaf and numb, they're trying, but they still can't do it. They're actually in so much pain that they can't even feel it anymore, but it's real and it's there and it's dominating their life. Has anybody ever been there? Trying to numb out, trying to veg out, trying not to feel, and yet the Word of God is telling us that lust or desire was in our ignorance, meaning we didn't know what we were doing, but now that we've come to Jesus, we know better because we're under new management and new ownership. Obedience is not legalism. Pursuing holiness is not legalistic. It's the born-again experience that I am moving into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ, that I am putting my old sinful passions and desires behind me by the power of the Spirit where I am actually a new person. Where my heart isn't the same, where my thinking isn't the same, where my behavior and my desires are not the same because God and His Word is at work in my life. Because the Spirit of God within me is now willing to do what God wants and not what I want. But the lust for money and the lust for power and the lust for sex corrupt us all and lust is tandem with the spirit of the age. Every commercial or advertisement that you can see has lust in it. If you watch television or you watch shows, I want you to start identifying it. Sit there with somebody and say, hey, let's watch a few and let's identify whether this is the lust for power, the lust for money, or the lust for sex. I mean, every it's like, I don't even know what we're advertising anymore. We'll just put up naked people and show as much skin as possible because it's attractive and it has a draw and people will click on our website and they'll buy our product. 
So every day you and I are spiritually assailed through all kinds of things, especially social media. And there is a war for our affection, for our desire, for what we are longing for. You know that people really struggle to worship a God they can't see when they're in idolatry in the world and their heart is feasting at the table of this age. The amount of guilt and shame and condemnation that you have to work through if you've been watching pornography and you just stand in the presence of the Lord and you see other people worshiping freely, that is a heavy weight that we were not made to carry. We were made for God. We were made to know Him. We were made to behold Him. We were made to be satisfied by God Himself. For the the mouth of our heart to drink of the rivers of the Spirit of God and to take Him in. Do you know why we cannot see the beauty of God rightly? Because we are bored. Because we want a quick fix. Because we hate the process. Because we want it all right now. And because God is eternal and He trains us in our senses and our feelings to actually learn to desire Him. I don't know what your prayer life is like, but mine often sounds like this. God, put your desires in my heart. Put your will over my will and crush me so that you can be glorified rightly. Because... When I said yes to you, I really said yes to you for the whole ride and the total package. If you give your life to Jesus, it is an all or nothing proposition. But the American church has invented the gray and she loves to live there and invite people to ride the fence and live in the world and live in the kingdom. And it doesn't work that way. Jesus said that if you're neutral, if you are not for me, you are against me. Well, how do I know I'm for Jesus? You obey Jesus? You do what Jesus says? If you disagree with Him, you're wrong. If you don't like what He says, you need to repent. If God never tells you to do things that you don't want to do, you might actually be following yourself. No, I'm serious. Like, you might actually be your own God. The Holy Spirit is the comforter, right? So if He's the comforter, doesn't that mean that He's going to lead you into some uncomfortable situations so that He can comfort you? If He's our teacher, then does that, doesn't that mean that we actually don't know everything? That we have a lot to learn? If he's our counselor, doesn't that mean that we have an absence of wisdom and that we need to be drinking from his truth and from his fountain? But lusts were ours formerly in our ignorance, but now we know better and the Spirit of God comes to liberate us from the lust for power, which is ambition. When you behold the greatness and the beauty of God... When you see His power at work, you end up worshiping His power rather than trying to be powerful yourself. 
You just begin to honor and glorify Him and exalt Him. And all of a sudden, you don't need a position anymore. And you don't need to be recognized by man because you're seen by God. How do I get delivered from the lust of money? You get discipled in your finances. The scripture calls us to give generously. It calls us to save diligently. It calls us to be good stewards of our wealth. But there are two ditches when it comes to money. You have frivolous and then you have frugality. People that are frugal and people that are frivolous and the church is full of them and God calls us to be faithful stewards with our money. That looks like giving generously and that looks like saving diligently. That looks like getting delivered from the spirit of the age that wants you to steward your finances poorly. That wants you to buy it right now. Y'all still here? How about the lust for sex? If we do not guard our hearts and our minds, if we do not keep watch over the desires of our hearts, we will pursue gratification in the flesh rather than in God Himself. Lust has neutered more men of God than we can count. Lust will drain the spiritual power and passion right out of you. I'm telling you, the defilement, the discouragement, the shame, the condemnation. I've worked with brothers and even sisters who are trapped in this nasty cycle. I saw one of them get free. The Lord gave me an idea. Maybe I'm sharing this for somebody. But they were in a low place. They had done it again. And I said, you need to write yourself a letter in this moment. And you need to, with all the vocabulary you possess, describe to yourself how awful and disconnected from God you feel right now. And you need to carry that letter around with you everywhere you go. And when you are experiencing extreme temptation, you need to read it out loud to yourself. So that you're not like the fool in proverb who returns like a dog to eat its own vomit. That's nasty. But that's what God says about fools that return over and over and over again. In other words, if you're really following Jesus, you've got a past and praise the Lord. But your past is not the past until it stops affecting your present and dictating your future. What I've done in the past has no hold on who I am today because Jesus is standing there with His blood saying, You cannot come any farther. So what are you longing for? What are you living for? What are you searching for? What is your heart gravitating towards? What are you spending your money on? What are you spending your time on? I think if most of us were honest, we would be mortified if we had to post a screenshot of our screen time on social media. Like, here's how many hours I've wasted this week looking and consuming other people's lives and not reading my Bible. 
But then we wonder why we're dry and stale. And this is what feeds the entertainment culture in the church is because we come and we're like, man, I just need a hit. I need a drink. I need you to preach a good word. I need the worship to be good. I'm so stale and so dry and so wrung out. I've actually got nothing to offer because I'm completely on E because I have mismanaged and misstewarded my money, my time, my resources, and my sexuality all week long. And then rather than preaching truth and repentance and calling people to get right with God, we just placate and we entertain and we keep the show going and we try to make people happy. Do you know how many pastors and leaders burn out serving people's expectations? Do you know how many people are deceived into thinking that ministry is making people happy and just meeting people's needs? But God is shifting his body all over the earth right now. We are massively coming out of entertainment and into being equipped and into being trained and into being sent out rather than sat down. See, religion comes to domesticate you. It comes to neuter you. It comes to put your fire out. It comes to tell you to sit down and shut up and don't forget to tithe. You just keep the ministry machine here moving. You have a whole group of people talking about money that think that they give so that you can preach to me. They look at giving like a transaction among men rather than I'm honoring God with my wealth and I'm saying, Jesus, I worship you. Jesus, I love you. Jesus, you're worthy. Jesus, if you wanted to, you could empty my bank account right now. You could dam up and dry up all of my streams of income if you would lift your hand off of my life. In Deuteronomy 8, it says that once you've built your houses and lived in them, once you've eaten and you've gotten fat, once you've had everything satisfied in this life, it says, then you will forget me, the Lord your God. So here we are in America and we're all drunk on comfort and convenience. As we don't have, we're not worried about persecution. I mean, if I preached on enduring persecution, that would be a waste of time in my opinion. But we've gotten so soft that if somebody doesn't like us or one coworker calls us one name, we're like, I'm being persecuted. And I'm like, honest, somebody doesn't like you, who honestly cares? If somebody doesn't like you, you tell them to get in line. I hope you grow to know Jesus Christ. I hope you grow to give your life to him. But if you live in the fear of man, you will not share Jesus with people. You will actually exalt your reputation and people liking you above the gospel being preached. And you will live in idolatry of self. But when you get delivered of yourself and you get given over to the plans and purposes of God, you wake up and you give thanks and you say, God, just use me however you want me to. If you want to make a fool out of me today that you would be glorified, please do it and do it quickly. Motives, morals, mindsets. Look at verse 15. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. 
If you address as Father the one who impartially judges, according to each man's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Remember I said that pursuing holiness doesn't make you a legalist, it makes you a born-again Christian. We are becoming holy. Holiness is about the internals. It's about the position of your heart. It's about the seed of your affection. Did you know that you can look holy on the outside but be unholy on the inside? This is the hypocrisy that Jesus detested so much in the Pharisees and the scribes and the lawyers and the Sadducees is they had all the right words. They knew the scriptures. They could quote the Psalms and the Proverbs, but they didn't have the substance of it in their life. We have people giving lip service to God, but really their lifestyle is a stench in his nostrils. What does it look like to follow Jesus? It looks like obedience and surrender. And you are my Lord and my master. And your father is my father. I don't know about you, but when you're a child, you don't tell your father what to do. Some of y'all tried. It didn't work out too well for you. Now I'm going to start my Father's Day message. Just kidding. But if you address... As father, you should conduct yourselves in fear. Now remember I said that holy fear makes you accountable. Demonic fear makes you paranoid. So you've got an issue in your life right now that you're being convicted of by the Holy Spirit. You've got the lust for power or the lust for money or the lust for sex that's leading you astray right now and you know it. Fear from the enemy will come upon you and make you completely paranoid and get you to strive so hard so that you can make God happy and you can just change your behavior and you can just check the box. But holy fear and godly fear and righteous fear brings conviction to our hearts and actually changes us where it becomes a delight to do the will of God. I don't know how many times in my life I've said to the Lord, Lord, I don't want to, but I'm willing to. Would you help me to want to? Like I'm dead enough to do it, but I'm not quite dead enough to do it with the attitude I know I should. So I need you to help me get there. Like actually teach me how to delight in doing your will. Teach me how to delight in living in Indiana because this is where you've called me to. Give me your attitude and your heart so that I might please you and honor you. That's a holy fear that makes me accountable to God and to others. That says, hey, you approach people and you say, listen, I need help. I need deliverance. I need healing. I'm caught in a trespass and I can't seem to stop it. But you know what will shut your mouth? The great mix of pride and shame that will keep you in silence. And we immediately start going into fear. What will people think of me if they knew the truth? But here's the reality. God thinks about you perfectly. Thinks about you without any flaw, without any error. And he's not going to make a mistake when he judges you and I. It says you're going to give an account. We're going to be judged for every work, for every word. 
We're going to be judged for all these things. So many times in the scriptures, you hear them saying, to the one who judges the living and the dead. That's Jesus. Did you know the Bible says that judgment begins in the house of God? What does that mean? Judgment begins in the house of God. That means that we ought to judge ourselves rightly in here. We ought to have a standard of righteousness and truth in here where there's real accountability and real family relationship going on where we will not allow one another to make a mockery of the gospel and claim Christ but live like the world. I don't know if you've ever had conversations like this, but I've had to approach people and say, listen, I feel like I wouldn't be a good brother to you if I didn't say this. And I'm coming from a place of real love for you because I don't know how you're going to take this, but I feel I'm being moved by the Spirit of God. And your actions and your lifestyle suggest that you might not actually know Jesus, that you might not actually really have comprehended the truth of why he came. And I just want to share this with you. That's uncomfortable. But the comforter is there. The lukewarm church in that moment is ready to writhe and scream that you are judging me. I'm loving you. I'm loving you so much that I'm willing to risk our relationship for the benefit of your soul. I've had a lot of people get mad at me, but you know what? They tried to run and God went and got them. I didn't go get them. I just prayed for him. Lord, bring him into the light of the truth. I don't know how many people have said, I couldn't get your words out of my head. I said, because they weren't my words. Because they were the truth of the gospel. God is a really good nagger. Hey, what are you doing? Oh, you know, same old, same old father. I don't think that's really fitting for you as my daughter. I don't think you actually belong there. I'm not going to let you go eat at the table of the world and without a conversation. (laughs) We're like, God, why are you being mean? No, God, you're being faithful. God would be unfaithful if he did not challenge us. If he did not convict us. If he did not woo us and win us and bring us into the truth. What kind of father would leave you in your sin? Not a good one. Keep reading with me. Knowing that you were not redeemed, verse 18, with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. But you were redeemed with precious blood. Would you say precious blood? As of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead. So God raised Jesus from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Now listen to the words of verse 22. By the way, it all hangs on the resurrection. That's what that means. If Jesus isn't raised from the dead, this is a joke. Verse 22. Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls 
for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. But the grass withers, and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord abides forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. Look with me again at verse 22. It says, In obedience to the truth, we've purified our souls for what? For a sincere love of the body. Do you really love the body of Christ? Do you really love the people in this room, or are you used to just sitting next to the same people? See, what we've lacked in the body for so long is what we call kingdom family. And there are those that are in the family because they want to be. And there are those that are on the outskirts because they want to be. But God as a good father is always putting us in family. It says he puts the lonely in families. It says that if my father and my mother forsake me, the Lord will take me up. How does God as a father take you up if your father and mother has forsaken you? He puts you in his body and he gives you new fathers and new mothers and new brothers and new sisters. I mean, it's, it's a crazy thought for some people, but I'm closer to many of you than I am my own blood family. I don't care if your last name is Johnson if you don't know Jesus Christ. If you are living in willful rejection and rebellion of the master, you and I actually have nothing in common but a last name, and that doesn't hold much in God's kingdom. This is the sword that Jesus came to bring that separates and divides family for the sake of Jesus. I've been encouraging people all the time. The tension that you feel in your family, especially around the holidays, is because of Jesus. Jesus is there with his hot sword of tension and he's drawing the line about the truth. About you can't actually call on the name of Jesus and think you're saved, but you are in continual, habitual, as a way of lifestyle sin. I'm not saying you slip up and God's going to throw you away. I'm saying you choose again and again and again. And people are warning you and people are admonishing you and people are coming to you and you are ignoring them. Listen to me. If you want to hear God roar, just ignore his whisper. You want to listen to the whisper of God. You want to heed the still small voice because that still small voice can become an inferno, can become a raging hurricane. What if some of the trouble that we experience in life is actually God as a good father resisting us in our pride? What if the reason why the business is failing or the endeavor isn't working out or the, is because we're not right with God and the Lord is a good father and he's not going to let us succeed lest we forget him? Does the Bible say that God opposes the proud? The word there means that he stands in full battle array and he's ready for war with you and your pride. If you don't think you have a pride problem, you definitely do. 
I mean, seriously, I identify pride in my life every day. Constantly wanting to lift myself up, think I'm right, think I know it all, think I'm this or that, that need recognition. You know, all these things, it's like that's the stuff that's got to get crucified with Christ, that needs the nails of the cross through our hands and our feet, that dies and doesn't need to be recognized or seen or heard or be right, but just wants to give God praise and honor. That can honestly say, who, get, who cares? Who gets the credit so long as God gets the glory I want to just capitalize on this and then we'll finish up here in obedience to the truth you've purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren can I give you a word of wisdom do not avoid sincerity through sarcasm Anybody in here identify as a sarcastic person? Raise your hand, tell on yourself with me, come on. Praise the Lord. Sarcasm can be a form of self-protection where rather than sincere love, rather than an honest, humble expression of how much, listen, it happens all the time. There's an intimate moment in a meeting. There's an intimate moment at the family dinner table. There's a, a sincere moment that's going on and all of a sudden somebody's ready to make a joke. Why do we do that? Because we're uncomfortable. Because we're trying to avoid sincerity through sarcasm. It's like, I can't actually affirm you as a man. Here are my brothers, Nick and Ben. I can't actually affirm you and tell you how much I love you and how much you mean to me and how at a complete loss, and I mean what I'm saying, I would be without you too in my life and so many others. But first I got to tear you down a little bit. Hey, dude, that shirt's a little too bright today. You look like a construction cone. <laughs> you don't. But this is what we do. This is what we do as men. Like, ah, yeah. Hey, man, I, you know, but you, you smell. What are we doing? We're avoiding sincerity through sarcasm, through humor. We're squirreling out of the moment. Brothers, please hear me. Your wife wants to have a sincere conversation with you. How many ladies are like, my God, I feel like I just can't get my man to be serious for five seconds. I'm like, I'm sorry, that's not a man, that's a boy. Children love to joke and laugh and play and everything's fun. But when you grow up and you mature, you can be sincere in your love for people. What if we flipped the whole script and we actually made birthday parties like funerals? We are so self-protected. We are so guarded in our love that we wait for people to die on earth to tell them how much they mean to us. Like, I, I couldn't do it while you had a, a heart that was beating inside of you. So while you're laying cold in a casket, I'll cry about how much you mean to me. And then you live with regret because you didn't actually get to say, I love you so much. I'm so grateful to God for you. I have a real, pure, sincere desire to see you succeed in every area of your life. What happens? Why don't we have sincerity in our love? Because we've not purified ourselves to the truth. Look again. 
in obedience to the truth, you've purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. Fervently love one another from the heart. Not from the mind. Some people love you and it's a mental love. You can feel it. Some people can't even say, I love you. They have to say, love you. Love you. No, it's real. It's a form of self. Or, or here's a, a good one. Love ya. Like, do you ever say ya? <laughs> love ya. <laughs> love ya like this much. It's like, it's like, love ya. Love you. I love you. Yeah. It's different. It matters. I live pure so my love is pure and not polluted. If your life is not pure, your love will not be either. Impurity in your lifestyle will produce impurity in your love. We purify our lives so that our love for one another and for God can be pure. I live pure. So that I can love pure. But you know what happens when impure love begins to motivate me? Are we talking about motives, morals, and mindsets? When impure love takes a hold of me and I get mixed up with all kinds of other feelings and I'm no longer self-sacrificial in my love for you, but I have a motive and I have an agenda, things begin to get really twisted. I'm going to give you three of them and I want you to write them down. This is a mixture of love that manifests through human beings. The first one is manipulation. I just love you so much that I want to tell you what to do. I just love you so much that if you don't do what I say, I'm going to intimidate you until you do. I just love you so much that if you don't listen to me, I'm going to make your life a living hell. And we think we're loving people, but really we're manipulating them. In every room of human beings, there's always somebody who's the biggest and the baddest and who has a button that they can push where they can go off the charts and they can begin to dominate everybody with their anger and their behavior. Or you have people, what they love to do, they'll manipulate you like a sucker, and if you confront them, oh, they'll just fold up like a table. <laughs> oh, why are you doing this to me? And we start whining about being loved. We start whining about being brought into the truth. You have people that you know them right now. You're thinking about them. That you avoid confronting them because they're so manipulative. They're so controlling. They're so ready to turn the table on you and make it your fault that they have shut you down and you actually don't speak up anymore. They've manipulated you without even really manipulating you. Because they've just set a tone and an expectation that sounds something like my way or the highway. I get really concerned in a marriage when there's not two voices. You can have two voices and one choice. You can be, but when she doesn't have a voice, brothers, I've got a problem. 
When she's not free to speak, and I didn't say it'd be disrespectful or dishonorable, but when you've shut her down with your temper tantrums and your whining and your complaining and your childishness, there's nothing godly about any of that. And ladies, if you think that your husband is the head, but you're the neck and you can turn him whichever way you want to, that's demonic and from the pit of hell too. So together, if our love is sincere and we're self-sacrificial in it and it's free of manipulation, then we're on the road that God has called us to walk. But the minute that we enter into manipulation, we are in league with the devil. Have you ever noticed the way that we steward services here and we try to invite people into what God is doing? How many times have you heard the phrase, if you're willing? Does that ring a bell to anybody? Hey, if you're willing, if you're willing or you're able, raise your hands or come forward or whatever. Why? Because you have a choice. You walked in the building this morning and you could worship God or not worship God. You could sit there and stew on your problems and your pain or you could stand up and engage the Lord. It's whatever you want to do. You have a choice to do whatever you want with your life. You can walk out of here and file for divorce. You can walk out of here and commit adultery. You can walk out of here and throw your life away. Or you can walk out of here and follow God all the days of your life. And obey Jesus. Manipulation and control. When we enter into controlling someone, we need to repent immediately. We need to stop trying to get other people to do our will and just do the will of God. I hear that little girl saying, you worry about yourself. You worry about yourself. If someone else's choices can move us off of Christ, they are our idol. Listen to me. Even in my marriage... If we woke up one day and God forbid Taylor said, hey, I've been reading Confucius's writings. And I think they're really good. Yeah, we can't even, I, I've been studying the Koran and I have to keep it in the garage. <laughs> That's a true story. She wakes up, yeah, I'm out. Well, I ain't going with you. You take your own soul right to hell, but not mine and not our kids. Because God made me their father. And I have a role and a part to play in the spiritual formation of their life. I can't control you. But I am in self-control. It's the only control that God blesses is self-control. Possess your own vessel. Watch over your own desires. Don't manipulate and control anybody. I see husbands and wives having some honest conversations. Being real. Hey, when you do this or if you have topics and you have areas in the marriage that you know you can't bring up, you're under the power of manipulation and control. Well, I already tried to talk to him about it five times and he just gets mad every time. So I just quit and I just shut down. You're being manipulated and controlled. Number two, 
The second mixture of impure love with selfish motives is fear. Number one is manipulation. Because love will never take your choice away. Control's always demonic. Number two is fear. Why is fear a mixture? Because fear actually makes you selfish. The presence of fear will make you self-absorbed and self-focused and fear will cause you to say no when God is trying to put a yes in your heart. You feel like God is leading you to do X, Y, and Z and here comes fear to manipulate you and intimidate you and shut you down and then when you're in fear you actually become selfish because all you can think about is what you're afraid of. Fear causes you to turn inward when love is others-oriented. This is why the love of God casts out fear. Because love actually reorients us off of self and onto God and onto others. Does that make sense? I know this hurts, but people that really, really struggle with fear are some of the most selfish people you can spend time around. We have to cater to your fear. We have to make provisions for your fear. We have to have pre-conversations and prep time and warm up so that you don't get in fear. And rather than you getting over being afraid and getting delivered, we'll just feed your flesh and cater to all your fear. Fear kills intimacy. It takes courage to be vulnerable. It takes courage to walk in humility. It takes courage to say, I need help. But the fear of what somebody will think. Can we talk about mindsets and morals and motives and worship services for just one second? I don't know why you stand or why you sit. I don't know why you raise your hands or why you dance or why you, I don't know what you do. I look this way. But we should be examining our motives and our morals. Here's what I know. The fear of man will never lead you to make a fool of yourself in worship. I got people like, hey man, dancing ain't for me. I'm like, listen, you don't have to dance every week. But if you've never danced in the presence of the Lord, what I hear you saying is joy ain't for me. Peace ain't for me. <laughs> Kindness, that's not for me. Are you, are, do you have the spirit bearing fruit inside of you or not? Like Jesus is my treasure. Jesus is my joy. I'll look stupid for Jesus. I know I can't dance. I don't care. I'm here to can't dance for Jesus. And I'm going to give him my best can't dance, my best can't worship, my best can't... Who cares? Whatever it is, this hand, that hand, this leg, hokey pokey for Jesus, who cares? But here's what I know. Love looks like something. When you're madly in love, you're not a statue. When you're madly in love, you're moved. 
Something happens. I don't care what it looks like. I'm not here to judge your worship. I am here to invite you into examining your motives, your morals, and your mindsets that says, God, why are there so many other people in here that seem enthralled with you and I'm bored? Number three, impure love mixed with selfish motives and it manifests as jealousy is the third one. I just love you so much that I compare myself to you. I just love what God is doing in your life. I'm so amazed at the work of the Spirit in your life that I just hang on your every word and I compare myself to you and I actually secretly want what you have. Here's what I've learned. Your enemies will mourn with you. Only your friends will celebrate with you. The truth is that many people have impure motives and they don't even know it. Deep down they're jealous and they want to see you fall. They want to see you fail. They're not longing and praying and believing for your success, for your breakthrough, for your blessing. They, they don't like it because they don't have it. The dark side of God's favor is jealousy. God begins to show you favor. He begins to honor you. He begins to say, I've got a plan for you. And it begins to unfold. And here come your brothers to throw you in a hole and sell you off. Because they don't like how beautiful the coat is that dad gave you. Comparison is the seed of jealousy. You know how we get into gossip and slander? Many times the door is jealousy. I'm jealous of what you got or what happened to you. I've been praying and contending for my promotion at work for a year and you've been there for three weeks and already got a raise. And rather than being grateful, thank you God for blessing my brother or my sister, you go, where's mine? I work harder than you. I'm more articulate than you. I'm more valuable than you. This is unjust and really it manifests towards people, but really we have a problem with God. And in the American culture, we're never content with what we have and it's never enough and we always want more. We are always lusting after more. It's never a big enough paycheck, a big enough bonus, a big enough raise. It's never a big enough fill in the blank and we're lusting and it feeds jealousy inside of us. Jealousy and honor are closely connected. Because honor and jealousy are others oriented. But honor looks at someone. Here, look at Rosalie for a minute. I honor Rosalie as a mother in the body of the Lord. As someone who has a story to tell and a history in God. Who has something to offer me. I look at Rosalie with honor and give thanks to God for her. But you could look at Rosalie and you could, be, you could start out honoring and end up jealous. She has so much more hair than I do. <laughs> what did I just do? I just turned towards me. Jealousy is selfish. Yeah. Honor is full of love. I'm, I'm so glad for you. I'm so glad that you fill in the blank that your life, that you're prospering. Wow. 
Remember, your enemies will mourn with you. They'll show up for a sad time and a bad time because they like your tears. But your friends, they can celebrate with you. They can say, praise the Lord. They can say, you've earned it. They can say, hope you had a great vacation. You deserve it. Even if I can't afford one. Because it's not about me. But I just love you so much that I want what you have. I just love you so much that I want to be you. I'm not satisfied with who I am. I don't know who I am. But you seem to know who you are, so I want to be you. I'm jealous of your friendships. I'm jealous of your relationships. I don't want to put myself out there, but I like how you do it. Jealousy, envy, strife. These are the things that contaminate pure love that get our eyes off of Jesus and that motiv motivationally and morally and as a mindset corrupt the work of the Spirit of God in our lives personally and corporately. Jealousy destroys honor. I want you to stand with me. I just want you to look at 1 Peter 1 verse 2. It says, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, that you may obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood, may grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. So the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit sent from God our Father is to cause me to obey Jesus. Is that plain enough? So here's what I want to ask you to do. Just close your eyes if you're willing. And you're able if your eyelids close. If you're impaired, you can just stare at me. It's a joke. I know everybody in here sleeps or you wouldn't be around. I just want to ask you. Ask the Holy Spirit. Say, Holy Spirit, search my heart. Lord, would you wash me? Would you cleanse me? Would you search me motivationally? Would you search me morally? Would you examine my mindset? God, would you correct me for having a bad attitude about my life? Would you adjust me in my grumbling and my complaining? Would you show me if I've gossiped? If I've slandered? If I've feasted on someone else's life instead of you? Jesus, I ask right now that you would convict us of sin by your Spirit. That you would purify us morally, motivationally, and in our minds, Lord. That we would have your heart. That we would be aware that you are at work and that we are becoming like you and you are holy. And God, you have no motive but love. Lord, may we be a people that only have one motive, and it's the sincere love for you and for others. God, I pray that you would wash us of all jealousy, of all offense, of all bitterness, of all slander, of all malice. Jesus, we want to be pure and right before you. Lord, teach us to love how you love.
Teach us to serve how you serve. Cause us to be sanctified by your spirit to obey you, Lord. We love you and we worship you today and every day. And it's in your mighty name we pray. Amen.